Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of his glory to you. All right, you, guys, you ready to get back into God's word? <laughs> All right, let's do it. We are going to continue looking at the book of Galatians this morning. And our text that we're going to look at today deals with something that fundamentally changes everything. It's a kind of event about which we later say things happened before or happened after. It's, it's an event with lasting results, the kind that makes it impossible to go back to the way things were before this event. Now, for Americans, usually the classic example is what happened on 9-11 with the Twin Towers falling. When I first was writing my sermon, I wrote, and all the adults in here will remember that, but probably not. That was 21 years ago. Who, who remembers the events of 9-11? Okay, actually most of you. Not all of you, but most of you. I was in my dorm room. I was walking up the stairs in my dorm, to my dorm room, and somebody told me it was on the news. So I started watching the news. I saw the second tower fall. I knew exactly where I was. Everything on that day, not everything, many things on that day changed, didn't it? There was a before and a before after and an after of 9-11 for us as a country. I mean, think about it. There, there were some lasting results of it. We have some foreign policy changed. Um, how we build tall buildings changed. How we travel changed things, some things fundamentally changed on the event of 9-11. Now, suppose that for my kids, my oldest kid is 11, right? Are you 11? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, my, my oldest son is 11. Now, suppose I share with him all about what happened on that day a year ago. And now suppose that through whatever other relationships he has, he's starting to hear other things about what happened during that day from some conspiracy theorists. So he's getting a little bit confused about what actually happened on 9-11 and what is the significance of that day. So now suppose I sit down with him. We sit down. I'm going to share with him a little bit about what actually happened. And I start and I share with him, uh, don't believe the things you're hearing from the conspiracy theorists. They're false. I share with him that I'm a trustworthy source. I was alive then. I, I saw the news. I lived through that. I share with him some of the things that we saw happen as a result of that day, some of the things I already shared, like travel change, we build buildings differently, foreign policy change, that sort of thing. But up until that point when I've sat down with Elias, what I've not shared with him is what actually happened yet again that day. I haven't yet, in my battling against the conspiracy theorists, again shared with him, well, this is what actually happened on 9-11. Our current place in Galatians is kind of like that. It's a little bit like that. Think about it. So far, Paul has shared with us why we should not believe the false gospels, that they're not true. He shared with us that he's a trustworthy source, so the gospel he preaches is true. He's also shared with us, with us some implications of this gospel of grace, implications like Gentiles don't need to first become Jews through circumcision. Implication like Jews and Gentiles can actually eat together and be in table fellowship together. But up to this point, Paul has not actually clearly stated what is this gospel of grace. He hasn't yet given us this full and clear statement of what this true life-altering, life-gifting gospel is. Well, that's about to change. So, I want you to remember, 
What is our context so far? Where are we so far in this letter? Last week, the last episode we saw in last week is that Paul is confronting Peter, isn't he? He's opposing Peter because Peter is withdrawing from the Gentile believers. He's, he's caving to some pressure from the Jewish Christians, some Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that are still holding on to pieces of the law as necessary. He's starting to cave into their pressure and withdrawing from some of the Gentile believers. And this will not do for Paul. Paul will not have any of it. To withdraw from the Gentiles didn't make Peter more special, didn't make him more holy, didn't make him a better sort of Christian. So Paul calls out Peter's hypocrisy and says, Peter, you're not being consistent with the truth of the gospel. So our text today is going to pick up right here. In fact, some scholars think that what we're about to read is still part of Paul's speech to Peter. It should still be in quotes. Maybe. But either way, what we're about to read is a springboard from last week that Paul uses to now launch into a definition of this gospel of grace that he has so far been passionately defending. And why is that? He's going to do something else for us. He's also going to provide for us what the gospel of grace does. This morning we're going to see two things, what the gospel of grace is and what the gospel of grace does. The section that we're about to read is the defining section in this entire letter to the book to the Galatians. What happens before what we're about to read is all pointing toward this point, and everything after our text today flows from this point. It's going to answer these two big questions for us. Big picture, what's the gospel of grace, and what does the gospel of grace do? So, please grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Galatians, New Testament, after First and Second Corinthians. If you didn't grab a Bible, if you don't have one, there's some right there on the table right in front of the AV booth. If you don't own a Bible, just grab one of those and take it home with you. We would love to gift you a Bible. So Galatians 2, we are going to start, our text today actually starts in verse 15, and we're going to read through the rest of chapter 2. That's our text today, but we're going to work through it in chunks and relatively slowly, a little bit by little bit by little bit. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, and what I want to do is actually start in verse 11 so we can see and remind ourselves of what that episode was last week between Paul and Peter, and we're going to flow right into our text for this morning. So let me start by reading Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I'm going to read through verse 16. But when Cephas, that's Paul, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? All right, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by his works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see how verse 15 just flows right out of verse 14? 
Paul here is essentially leveling the playing field. He's saying that, Peter, you and I, we're both Jews by birth. We're both naturally Jews. We have experienced the benefits of that. We are a part of God's covenant people. We have been given this good law that a good God gave to Moses. We have systems in place in order to relate to God. These are benefits of being a Jew. We had privileges that every other non-Jewish people group didn't have, the Gentiles. This is the way he's getting at when he says Gentile sinners, sinners in an ethnicity sense, that they are not Jews. So these Gentile sinners, they didn't have these things. Peter, you and I, just like the Gentiles, are the same when it comes to the gospel of grace. We are in the same place with the same needs. We need God's grace just as much as the Gentiles. We are just as impotent, just as weak, just as unable to affect our own salvation as everyone else. Peter, you know this. (laughs) The truth of the gospel applies equally to Jew and to Gentile. So do you see what, what Paul's doing? He's leveling the playing field. He's leveling the ground between Jew and Gentile by appealing to his common theologically held convictions with Peter. He's appealing to their common understanding that the truth of the gospel, the very truth that Paul has been so passionately defending so far in this book is the same. They believe the same thing. What exactly is that truth? So Paul now, he gives us this long-awaited definition of the gospel of grace, and he hammers it home. He repeats himself several times for emphasis. Here it is on the screen. I've color-coded so you can see the the repetition. Here's the gospel of grace. What is it? It's you're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, right? It is having believed in Christ Jesus that we're justified by faith in him and not by works of the law. And the gospel of grace is that no one will be justified by works of the law. Do you see how Paul just hammers it again and again and again? Can he get any clearer? Works of the law, all of those things that the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses with all of its instructions, all of those things do not provide justification for anyone before God, Jew and Gentile alike. But it begs a question, doesn't it? So what exactly is justification and why do we need it? Well, I'll start with the need. The Bible's clear that from the fall back in Genesis 3 that we are now all innately sinful. We're born sinful. The women, part of the women's Bible study, I believe you even looked at this this past week, the fall and what it did. Because of the fall, we now naturally choose sin over and over and over and over again, Paul is really clear in the book of Romans. He, he says that we were slaves to sin. That's what we're born into. That's the state of life we're born into. And if you're a Christian, you know firsthand that we sin over and over and over again. Because of the fall, that is our natural bent. Because of sin, as we stand before Jesus, we are what? Unrighteous. We are not justified. We are not innocent. Now, when it comes to a person relating to a perfectly holy and just God, that is a problem, isn't it? It's a huge problem because God is perfectly holy. Remember this. This is the holy God who banished Adam and Eve from the garden due to their sin. 
This is the holy God who wiped out humanity in the flood due to their sin, except for Noah and his family. This is the holy God that no person could look upon and live because of their sin. This is the holy God who shook and set on fire Mount Sinai when he was meeting with Moses, the same mountain that no other Israelite could touch without dying because of their sin. This is the holy God before whom the prophet Isaiah trembles before due to his sin. This is the holy God who even allows Israel and Judah to be conquered by pagan nations later on in the history of Israel because of their sin. Sin is a huge problem before a holy God, isn't it? Our innate sinfulness causes us to be separated from God. And because God's holy and just, he cannot simply allow sin to go unpunished. If he did, he would no longer be just. He wouldn't be God anymore. So the Bible's clearly the ultimate punishment then for sin is what? Death. Yes, it's eternal separation from God forever. So because of sin, as we stand before God, we stand unjustified, unrighteous, guilty, justly deserving the punishment upon our sin, which is death. That's a huge problem, isn't it? We need to be justified before a holy God or we die. Somehow, somehow what we need is to be declared by God to be righteous rather than sinful. Somehow to be declared innocent rather than guilty. We need to be justified. This is what being justified means. It means to be declared by God to be righteous. The imagery is that of a courtroom, that holy and just God is a judge, and as guilty people pass by, he is declaring them to be righteous instead of sinful, to be innocent instead of guilty. Somehow, he is able to, on miraculous grounds, declare that person to be justified. This is the common need for all of humanity, for Jew and Gentile alike. Our friends, this, this is your need. If you were raised in a Christian home or not, this is your need. It's the same need for the Catholic, for the Pentecostal, for the Lutheran, for those in the Reformed camp, for those not in Reformed camp. The need is the same. It's the same need as whoever your Christian hero is. And it's the same need for the Dalai Lama and Muhammad and the great Grand Ayatollah and on and on. It's the same need for Dietrich Bonhoeffer as it is for Hitler. It's the same need for Jew and Gentile, the same need for you and me. Now, I, I want you to notice something here. For Paul, humanity's common problem here, our innate, born into it sinfulness is simply a given for everyone. Every time he uses the word justified here in verses 15 through 16, it's all passive. It's, it's something that needs to happen outside of a person. Rather than us doing the justifying, we need to be justified by something outside of us. See, Paul didn't have to battle here the, the twisted and hogwash. People say hogwash still. It means like, it means like not good. Um, here's an Iowa thing, actually. Um, Paul, Paul didn't have to battle this twisted hogwash notion that, that humans are innately born into a good. We hear that now, don't we? Paul knew better. That's simply not, not the case. He didn't have to battle that. All of humanity is in need of being justified before God by something. The question for Paul, though, is what is that something? What exactly outside of a person justifies him or her? Was it obeying the law? 
Good. <laughs> I should have not looked down. I should have looked up. That's, that's my fault. In this one verse, in verse 16, Paul says, absolutely not. The law cannot justify you. No matter how hard anyone has tried to obey the law, none of those acts of obedience provide this miraculous ground upon which God in all of his holiness and all of his justice could declare a person righteous. Even the very things that pre-conversion Jewish Paul held so dear to himself, that he did so religiously, so passionately, so zealously, so sincerely, those very things that Paul held so dear early in his life, those very things he emphatically argues here cannot justify him or anyone else before God. Being raised in a Christian home will not justify you. It's a huge advantage that points you in the right direction, but it's not going to justify you. Knowing a lot about the Bible and praying and attending church and serving in church are not things that will, can ever justify you. So it raises the question, doesn't it? If works of the law cannot justify you, can anything justify us? Paul's clear here, too. Do we have any kids still in the room? Are they all gone? Maybe a couple. All right, kids, I want to hear from you. What is the only thing that can justify you? And if you need help, look at the blue wording on the screen. Faith in Jesus Christ. Yes. Yes. The, hey, think about this. Works of the law cannot justify you. Can anything justify you? Yes, Christian. Yes, something can justify you before a holy and just God is faith in Jesus. It's a gift. Faith in Jesus can justify for the Jew and the Gentile, for you and me. Now notice this. This isn't faith in the law, is it? It's not faith in the good stuff you do. It's not faith in your parents' faith or the faith of those around you. It's not this idea simply of just having faith. I'm a spiritual person. I just have faith. That is not what Paul's talking about. Rather, this is a specific type of faith with a specific object. This is faith in Jesus. Now, it's not just believing some things about Jesus. It's not believing some right information about Jesus. It's not just, it's not just intellectual. It's also a posture of trust in the person and work of Jesus. It's believing that Jesus and Jesus alone can justify us before God. It's a faith that resolutely believes that Jesus alone can actually take away our sins. All those things that cause us to be before God unrighteous and unjustified. It's a faith that Jesus alone then can replace all of our sin with his own righteousness. We just sung about this earlier. With his own righteousness, which is the only ground that we can now stand before God as being justified. Jesus is the miraculous ground upon which God can declare us justified. He is the reason that we can stand before God justified today and is also the reason why we can be assured of being declared righteous by God in the future when we stand before the judgment throne of God. All of our justification today and tomorrow all points back to what Jesus has already accomplished for us. It's a done deal. He's already lived a sin-free life, sin-free life for us. He already took the punishment for our sin upon himself when he died on the cross for us. He already rose again, conquering the power of sin and death forever for us. It's a done deal. Faith is believing that Jesus accomplished all of that for you and that his accomplishments are all that you need for your justification. My friends, this is the gospel of grace that 
by grace, not by any works of your own. God justifies those who have faith that's rooted in Jesus. Did you catch God's incredible grace here? Even that saving faith that you have is a gift that God's given you. That faith is not a work in and of itself. You have to try harder to muster it up, to do enough study to get it, to be around the right people to get it. Paul is clear in Ephesians 2. It is a free gift that he gives, and that is the ground that you can be justified before God. That is the sort of grace that our God gives. And get this, the God that does that, the God that gives us that free gift graciously is still just as holy and just as he was that we read about in the Old Testament and through the New Testament. He's still today just as holy and just as he was with Adam and Eve and with Noah and with Moses and with ancient Israel. He's still just as holy and just. And he is gracious and merciful and loving. He himself did through through Jesus what we never could, graciously justifying us and putting us back in right relationship with him. Do you sense the gravity here of the gospel of grace? Do you get the weight of it? The gravitas? Is that French? I don't know what that is. Like, do you get the gravitas of the gospel? That's probably not even the right context. Do you get the gravity of the gospel of grace? Like, do you see why Paul will go to the mat defending the gospel of grace? You, Christian, no matter your background, are justified and will be forever justified by your faith in Jesus alone. It's not how frequently you attend church. (laughs) You're not justified by how well you love others. You're not justified by how much money you give away or by how frequently and how long you pray or how frequently and long you read the Bible, how frequently and long you serve within the church. All right, fellow introverts in the room, You're not justified by how many church picnics you go to. Or during the greeting time, how many people that you don't already know you talk to. Or how long you hang around after the gathering. You and me are, for all of us, our only basis to be justified before God is our faith in Jesus. That's it. Paul hammered at home. I don't know how else to hammer at home more. That's it. But... The Jewish Christians pressuring Paul, or sorry, pressuring Peter at Antioch, those Jewish Christians who are still holding on to parts of the Jewish law as necessary, they object. And we're going to see this objection in the next verse. Let's read verse 17. This is actually Paul's response to their objection, but in his response, we will see what the objection is. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. The objection, it goes something like this. If all we need for justification is faith in Jesus, then what's the role of the law? The law, it's what guides us in how to live, how not to sin. So if Jews are now abandoning that law, and are being found to be just like Gentiles because of Jesus. This is what he means by sinners. He's harkening back to us in an ethnicity sense. If we're, if we're just like Gentiles now, and now we're doing things that are actually counter to the law, we're not obeying those dietary rules anymore, we're actually eating with Gentiles, then isn't Jesus teaching us to sin? 
Does that make sense, that logic there? The question is the role of the law in the life of a Christian. Doesn't the law teach us how to avoid sin? And if so, as some of the Jewish Christians assumed, doesn't that then make Jesus a servant of sin because he is the reason why the law is being abandoned? Well, certainly not, replies Paul. Why? Verse 18, let's read it. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if we go back, if we rebuild and give back to the law authority and start observing the dietary rules, again as an example, if we go back and stop eating with Gentiles, then we are communicating that in all that time previously when we were eating with Gentiles, that we were actually sinning. So if we go back to observing the law, then yes, Paul says, I would prove myself to be in the wrong all that time when I was no longer observing the law. Does that make sense? I don't have a whole lot of head nods. Yeah? Okay. But Paul says, that can't be. I can't go back. Why? Because such an objection is not only based on a wrong understanding of the theological truth that we just celebrated in verses 15 and 16, but it's also a wrong understanding of the role of the law. Take a look. Verse 19. Let's read it. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Do you catch that? For through the law, I died to the law. Get this. This is radical and profound, especially given Paul's day, especially given Paul's audience. Paul here argues that the law the very law that pious Jews held so dear for their right understanding or right relationship with God, that very law itself set the stage for Jesus. It showed Paul just how sinful he truly was. It showed him his inability to justify himself by his inability to perfectly keep the law. It showed him his need for something other than the law to justify him. Paul is going to flesh out more of the role of the law here later in this letter to the churches in Galatia. But for now, what I want us to see is this, that the law itself ushered Paul to this place of realizing the law's inability to justify him, of the law actually pointing beyond itself. This is, in a sense, really similar to our Christian rhythms today, whether it's reading the Bible or praying, or attending church, or being in Christian community, or study where we can more accurately form our doctrine about God to be more biblical. These things are never an end in themselves, are they? These things are not what we find our justification in. If Parents, parents, if, if, if we are simply teaching our kids how to read the Bible and how to pray, but that's it, we are not showing them how to actually be justified. All those things need to point beyond themselves and point them beyond themselves to Jesus. You attending church often, it's beautiful and necessary and essential in a healthy believer's life. But that's not the end. It's a means to an end to point beyond itself. Attending church can never justify you. Being in the right family can never justify you. Just like the law could never be what pre-Christian Paul was hoping it could be. It couldn't provide him justification, but rather it pointed beyond itself. So, of course, Paul can't go back to like before, and neither should any other Jewish Christian, neither should you or me. In fact, it's, it's impossible. 
Because of Jesus, who is the very message of the gospel of grace, everything's changed. The focus has now shifted from the law and shifted squarely upon Jesus. The Christian faith is radically centered upon, revolves around, gets its worth from, any of, any of its meaning from the person of Jesus and Jesus alone. The person and work of Jesus is that earth-shattering truth that changes everything. He's the point at which we refer to things either happening before or happening after. So if Paul, of course Paul can't go back. Jesus is our 9-11 event and my far from perfect analogy. Just like we can't go back to pre-9-11 days, so Paul can't go back to his, before his, his Jesus days. For the Christian, Jesus, the very bedrock, the very focal point of our, of our faith changes everything. How so? Well, Paul is going to help us here, too. He's now going to turn from hammering home this definition of what the gospel of grace is to now teasing out a big picture of what the gospel of grace does. And he's going to do it by describing three fundamental ways in which, in which faith in Jesus changes everything. The first is in verse 19. We actually, we already read it. By God's grace, the law's role in pointing beyond itself utterly changed Paul's relationship to the law. Rather now than chasing the law to bring right standing with God like Paul used to do, Paul has now figuratively died to the law in order to live to God. By fully turning to Jesus, Paul's relationship to the law has now been forever radically altered. You see, that the law, it no longer holds authority over Paul. Jesus does. The law is no longer Paul's place of highest allegiance. He is now fully allegiant to Jesus. This is the first fundamental change for Paul. And and this is for us too. Faith in Jesus changes our allegiance. There's two more changes that Paul quickly describes. Let's read them, verses 20 through 21. See if you can spot them. There's two more. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's the second change that Paul describes. His identity has also changed. He's no longer the Paul of his yesteryear. The Paul who was identified as a zealous student of the Jewish law. His identity is no longer a Jew trying hard to find justification in the law, but failing. He is no longer identified by his sin. No, Paul is now intimately identified with Jesus, not sin. Paul has figuratively been crucified with him. This imagery of Paul's old self dying, of old law-chasing Paul is now gone. He's died with Christ. We have now new changed Paul. In fact, Paul is so intimately identified with Jesus that he can now say, that it is Jesus who now lives in him, referring to the Holy Spirit and dwelling a believer, the Spirit of Christ. Now Jesus actually lives inside of Paul and lives through him. Jesus has changed everything. Even in how uh, Paul wrote this verse in the original Greek, he starts with Christ, he ends with Christ. It's literally this. With Christ, 
I have been crucified, lives, and it is no longer I who live, but in me, Christ. It's the way of underlining and putting in bold in the Greek the most important thing. And what is that for Jesus, for Paul? I just gave it away. It's Jesus, good. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul's consciousness or his identity or his personality is just subsumed into Jesus. Like, Paul doesn't exist anymore. It's not this idea that he just becomes one with God that some religions teach. He's not like a a drop of water who's now just in the sea of water. No, Paul's still Paul. His personality remains. We see his personality all over his letters, don't we? His personality remains, but he is fundamentally changed now through union with Christ that faith in Jesus brings. He is now intimately identified with Christ, not with sin, and that leads to the third fundamental change Paul here describes. Union with Christ also changes the way Paul lives. The end of verse 20. Paul now lives what? By faith in Jesus. A faith based on Jesus' very personal, sacrificial love for him. A faith based on what Jesus did for Paul, motivated by Jesus' love for Paul. The faith isn't just this one-time hoop that you jump through in order to get justification. It's, it's not this abstract concept. No, faith in Jesus is a personal trust in Jesus that then also changes the way a person lives. Living by faith in Jesus is fundamentally different than any sort of other living. Later in this letter to the churches in Galatia, he's going to flesh out quite fully what this living looks like. What does it, live, what does it look like to live by the Spirit? We're going to get there later. But for now, let's see that the gospel of grace not only changes Paul's allegiance, not only changes his identity, but also changes the way that Paul lives. So, big picture. If you could sum up those three changes in what the gospel does, what would you say? What does the gospel then do? You can really just shout it out. What does it do? What? Transforms. Oh, that's good for our vision. Yes, it does transform everything. I probably should have used that, actually. (laughs) This is what I use, so it may may not be as good. Good. It does this. It gives us new life, doesn't it? It transforms us into new life. Yeah. This is what the gospel of grace does. Faith in Jesus doesn't justify us before God, but then just leaves us untouched otherwise. Rather, faith in Jesus justifies us before God, and it makes us brand new Christian. Christian, there's no going back to whatever the hollow thing that you were chasing before you trust Jesus to save you for your identity, for your life, for your value, for your worth. There's no going back. There's no longer hoping that you've got enough intellectual knowledge to save you. There's no longer hoping that all the good stuff that you do is going to justify you before God. No longer hoping that going through the motions of the Christian life will justify you. Because of Jesus, that burden is gone. Do you hear that? You don't have to be weighed down by that anymore to try to find favor before God. Jesus makes you brand new and gives you brand new life. You've been, if your trust is placed squarely in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you, you are irreversibly a new person. You're no longer a slave to sin. You now find your justification in Jesus 
in Jesus alone. You've been rescued from death. You've been rescued from sin. You've been given brand new life. You've been given Jesus. (laughs) There's no going back. This doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin, does it? It doesn't mean at times you're not going to believe false things. It doesn't mean at times that your life is is going to look indistinguishable from those who don't know Jesus around you. It, It doesn't mean that you're suddenly perfect. Paul is really clear in Romans 7 that that's not the case. And yet, even so, Christian, even so, even in your remaining indwelling sin that you battle, Jesus has changed your allegiance, he's changed your identity, and yes, he's even changed the way you live. You have been given the Spirit of Christ who to live in you, and the Spirit, listen to this, the Spirit will not fail in his work so that over time you will live more and more fully into your new allegiance, your new identity, and your new way of living. The Spirit does that work in you. So take heart, Christian. If you're feeling overwhelmed, and maybe you're discouraged by your sin, maybe the things that we're reading here feels completely alien to your experience of the Christian life right now. Take heart and turn in repentance again to our good and gracious God, who loved you so much to send his son for you, and ask the Spirit to continue the work that God has already promised he's doing in you. Ask the Spirit to provide you with the assurance of your salvation the salvation upon which he himself is your seal. You've been sealed. Remind yourself of the truth of what Jesus has done for you and what he is currently doing in you. He will not let you go, Christian. There is no going back. By God's grace, you have been forever united with Christ. Praise God. My goodness. There's also a warning here. If you claim to be a Christian but are still holding on to other things for your justification. If your sin doesn't lead you to a place of being remorseful at all, if, if you love all of your sin, if your life looks indistinguishably indistinguishable all the time from people who do not know Jesus around you, I implore you to search your heart. Is there evidence of the Spirit at work in you? Do you actually trust Jesus and Jesus alone to be your justification, even with all of the times that we fall and all the things that we see that God does really positively in our heart, the trajectory is kind of like this, isn't it? As we become more and more like Jesus, do you still trust in all of that, that Jesus is your only justification before a holy God? To be Christian is to believe the gospel of grace, to have faith in Jesus alone as your justification, to believe that he did for you what you never could do. To add, to add anything to the gracious work of Jesus, to seek your justification in anything else, to give in to that urge that you've got to earn it, you've got to work harder, or to kind of add your good stuff to it. In the words of Paul here at the very end of our text in verse 21, is to make a mockery of Jesus' work on the cross. Rather, Christian, We as a church, we celebrate what Jesus did on the cross. It was not pointless. (laughs) It's what gives us brand new life. It's what we celebrate every week. But we're going to celebrate again this week. We have been, and we do it through communion. 
at the end. This is a rehearsal, a, uh, a tangible way to be reminded of what Jesus did for us that allows us to be justified before a holy God. God, I thank you that um, you saw fit in eternity past to make a way for sinful and broken human beings to be in relationship with you again. You knew we could never do it. We could never obey a law perfectly enough. We could never work hard enough to make up for even one sin against a perfectly holy and just God. But you, out of your love and your grace, chose to do something about it yourself. You sent Jesus to do what we never could, to justify us before you, not by anything else. So I thank you for even preserving this letter that Paul wrote to remind us of this, this truth. Spirit, I pray you be at work right now in our hearts, showing us those things that you want to teach us and tell us from this text. I pray that our love for you would well up, would it grow as a result of what you've already done for us? And would that growing love govern then how we live? We live differently, but we can't do that on our own either. We need your help. We need your power. Would you enable us to do do that to a further extent? We're trusting your spirit to do that work. Thank you for accomplishing this for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.